The following message is by Pastor Andrew Beto, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orchard, Texas. More information on First Baptist Church Orchard can be found at fbcorchard.com. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in to steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be filled with darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word of the Lord. All right, last week we had a little issue with the mic. So if you're hearing a lot of reverb or a lot of static, don't say anything because it'll embarrass me. No, just say, hey, I can't hear you. The static is too much, okay? Okay, good to go. Um, This week, I was speaking to one of my pastor friends, uh, and he was telling me a story that that really kind of disturbed me. It was was one of these poignant stories that kind of gets under your skin and makes you think about life and about the way that you're living your life. He told me a story about a pastor in Galveston who's actually living in the church that he had served in. The church had died. There was nobody that was coming there, and the 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 people that were still in charge of the facility were allowing him to live there while he worked a secular job because he had no place to go. Um, and when he was asked, you know, what happened to the church, you know, wh- where did it go? He related this story about how the church had been doing really, really well really, really well, until Hurricane Ike came through. And when Hurricane Ike came through, it destroyed people's houses, it flooded the place, people moved away, people stopped coming to church. What he didn't say there, with the subtext beneath all of this, was that they had become very much involved in the prosperity gospel movement. Some of you guys have heard this, the name it and claim it movement, the the hey, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy movement. If you're in God's will, he'll reward you movement. And that works until it doesn't work. That works until bad things happen. Because when bad things happen, a faith that is built on temporal rewards or money or any of the other stuff crumbles. And and many of the people that were at this church asked the question, where was God when this stuff happened? What happened? I I thought he was supposed to bless us. This isn't a new thing, though. None of the things that we find in the book of Matthew are are new things. It is natural for people to believe that if they are good, they will receive blessing from God. And they will equate blessing from God with money and with success. Jesus understood this. 
And that's why he's speaking to these people about money and about having the correct relationship with prosperity and having the correct relationship to wealth. And Jesus is not a communist, right? We've talked about this before. Jesus isn't a hippie with the bathrobe. He's not, he's not some dude out there who's, you know, saying, oh, all money's bad and you should just, you know, live with flowers and everything's awesome and just be awesome to each other. Like the little guy in the Lego movie, if anybody's seen the Lego movie, everything's cool, right? That's not him, okay? It's not all cool. But what he is saying goes much deeper than that. What Jesus is saying is that wealth is not about wealth. It's about the condition of the heart and the way that the heart interacts with wealth, the way that the heart interacts with money. That's what's important here. See, your heart is where your treasure resides. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. That's where your concern is. That's where your care is. What you value will determine where your heart is. See, Christians should not treasure earthly things more than heavenly things. He begins with a really simple point. He says that it's foolish to value treasures on earth because they're passing away. Earth is a bad place to store value. Right? It's a bad place to store wealth. Why? Because everything here is going to disappear. Guys, there's nothing that you have that will be here in 100 years. If you have a gold brick, someone's going to steal it. If you own land, somebody's going to take it. If you own a lot of land, your kids will probably fight over it. Nothing in this room will be here in 500 years. In a thousand years, you won't recognize this place. See, there is no permanence in life. There is no permanence in anything that we do. And Christ wants them to understand this. This is why he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasure in the world is a bad place to store value because it disappears. Because it passes away. Gold can get stolen. Cloth gets eaten or decays, none of your treasure will go with you into eternity. Jesus told a story in the Gospel of Luke. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. I was talking to Matt the other day about he's out there cutting hay, and it was interesting to listen to him talk about how, how full his fields had been and, and the fertilizer and all the rest of this stuff. And, and I listened to this, and it was talking about the abundant harvest. As you drive out here, you see these fields that are that are dripping with cotton. Well, this is a man who was experiencing that. A man who had fields that were full to the bursting point. And, and so the scripture says, he looked at himself and he said, I have no place to store my crops. I'll build bigger barns and I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. 
See, worldly treasures are a bad place to store up value. Heavenly realities are the place that you should be storing up value. These are the things that are eternal. These are the things that will last beyond your death. These include spiritual blessings. They include the favor of God. Things that, that don't disappear. Things that will last with you for eternity. And then you, go, you can go through the book of Matthew and pick out all of the different things that Jesus says will be rewarded in heaven. Suffering persecution for Jesus. Loving your enemies. Giving generous gifts to the poor. Fervent prayer. Humble fasting. Taking care of the saints and, the, and Jesus and his disciples. These kind of things will earn reward in heaven. But the, the list isn't exhaustive. And it's not meant to be. The idea here is to change the way that we relate to the world that we live in. See, this is deeper than just an exchange of goods. We're not just buying good things in heaven with temporal things on earth. It's much, much deeper than that. Like everything that Jesus talked about, it's not about the surface level things. It's about the condition of the heart and why we value the things that we value. See, the location of your treasure determines the state of your heart. And the heart is incredibly important to Jesus because the heart is incredibly important to God. One of the fundamental teachings of Judaism was that the heart should belong to God. Every day, three times a day, the Jews would say the Shema. This was this statement of faith that reminded them that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and with all their strength and with all their skill. Everything. With everything that they had, their heart was to be dedicated to God. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand what total devotion to God means. A lot of times we'll say, oh, you know, Pastor, why do you always got to talk about money? Why, why do we always talk about money? Why do we always talk about money? Because Jesus talked about money a lot. Way more than he talked about most of the things that we talk about. Jesus talked about wealth and money and the way that we relate to it. Because money drives our entire lives. We spend the majority of our time dealing with money. Most of our fights in our marriages revolve around money and in-laws, but mostly money, okay? Mostly money. Everything that we do revolves around money. And so Jesus spoke to this incredibly human issue. And he tried to explain what the kingdom of God was like in terms that his people would understand. He tells his, his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for a fine pearl. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. See, it's easy to say that you care about the kingdom of God. It's easy to say, I love Jesus. It's easy to say, I'm dedicated. But what you do with your resources, what you do with your time, is where the rubber meets the road. This talk's cheap. Right? Talk is cheap. It's when you have skin in the game that things become real. 
We should care about the kingdom of God so much that we are willing to give up literally everything for it. Jim Elliott understood what this meant. He was a missionary, and he traveled to the Amazon to evangelize one of the tribes that was down there. We, Daryl and I just got back from the Amazon, and it was interesting to be in the same kind of area that Jim Elliott was in. He went into one of these tribes, and, and he knew that it was dangerous, but he went in anyway. And in the process of evangelizing to him, he and several of his friends were killed. And after his death, his wife was going through his paperwork, and she found this quote in his, in his diary. And it's one that stuck with me for a long time. He said, it says, He is no fool who trades what he cannot keep for that which he can never lose. After his death, the tribe that had killed him was won to Christ through the efforts of his wife. Right? His wife went down there and served with the people that had killed her husband. And they eventually became Christians. He died so that they could know their Savior. And I think that he would think that that was a good deal. See, he understood that there are things in this life that are worth dying for. There are things in this life that are worth giving up everything that you have for. He valued the eternal things so much that he was willing to give up everything that he had. And my question to you is, do you value eternal things so much that you would give them all away? You would give away all of your possessions, all of your temporal goods, all of the blessings in this life in order to serve God. And before you go and tell me, oh, that's not what, that's not what Jesus does. That, that, you know, that's, that's not what this is about, Pastor. I want you to think about the rich young ruler who came to Christ and Christ told him to sell everything he had to go and follow him. I, I want you to think about Abraham who was asked to give his only son. Right? We serve a God who does and can ask everything that you have. That is in his character. That is who he is. And so my question is, what is your response to that? Do you love God more than your stuff, more than your dreams, more than your life? He asked the rich young ruler to sell everything that he had, and most of us won't even give 10% of it. And he says give everything. Most of us manage God's money and keep 95% of it. Most of us give a lower percentage to God than we do in a tip. But as chintzy as we often are with our money, we're way chintzier with our time. We give God a fraction of the time that we have. We make time for everything in our lives but God. We give him an hour a week and we think we're awesome. Like, hey, I give you an hour. What do you want? I mean, come on. I sat and listened to that guy prattle on for 50 minutes. 50 minutes, Gary. That's right. 50. No way. <laughs> Listen to him. Guys, we have to love God with all that we are and all that we have. 
Are you ready to give up everything for God? Are you ready to give up the dreams that you have for yourself? Are, are you willing to give up the dreams that you have for your child? What happens if your kid comes to you and says, I want to go be a foreign missionary? I want to go spend my life in Ecuador, in Brazil. I want to go to Brunei. I want to go to China. Are you willing to give that up? Or are you going to talk him out of it? Are you willing to devote the first fruits of your money to God? Are you willing to devote the first fruits of your time to God? Are you willing to spend less time watching TV and more time doing a quiet time? Are you, are you willing to give up some of your sleep so you can get up early enough to spend time with God in the morning? That's what I'm asking you. Because talk is cheap. Talk's cheap. You can say, I value God, I love God, He's important to me. But if you're not doing the things that He's asking you to do, if you're not devoting the things to Him, then you've already made your decision. See, the treasures you collect and the things that you do send a signal about the condition of your heart. Because your heart resides where your treasure is. What you treasure determines what your heart is. The condition of your heart is played out in the things that you desire. And here, guys, I'm talking more to myself than I am to you guys because I know the condition of my heart and the things that I desire. Most of them go boom, right? I keep them in a closet. I go in and I touch all my guns. I desire guns. I like them, okay? I don't even shoot them that often. Sometimes I just go in there and I look at them just to have them, just to know that they're there. See, what you desire determines how you will interact with the world. Consciously or unconsciously, you will attempt to gain that which you value. And what you value demonstrates the condition of your heart. Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus says it this way. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be filled with darkness. If then the light which is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And I know what you're thinking right now. What on earth is that guy talking about? That makes no sense. Don't feel bad. That's the response of most of the commentaries. This is one of the least understood passages in Scripture. It's confusing. To understand it, we have to kind of unpack it a little bit and realize that just like the Jews talked about the heart as being the seat of emotion, right? You love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. We're not talking about the organ, the organ that pumps blood through your body when we say your heart broken. What we're talking about is the seat of your emotions. When they talked about the eye, it was the seat of desire. Okay, your eye controlled what you desire, what you see. And men, you understand what I'm talking about. You understand how that works. Women too. We can understand this the best when we read through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon, the, one of the wisest men that ever lived, wrote this stuff down. This is a man who owned everything that he wanted, who did anything that he wanted to do. And he wrote down, he said, After the teacher described how he massed houses and vineyards and gardens, parks, servants, herds, flocks, silver, gold, treasures, and concubines, in his pursuit of enjoyment, he adds, All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. Now, he's not saying that 
his eyes have a brain and decide what he wants. It's a metaphor for his desire. See, the eye illuminates the rest of the body, the rest of the soul with the things that we see, the light that comes into our eyes, the things that we gaze on determine what goes on inside of us. If your eye is good, then your whole body will be good. If your eye is dark, your whole body will be dark. Jesus is not speaking about vision. He's speaking about desire. He's speaking about the way that our desires control us, the way that what we value dictates what we do. In this context, good could also be generous. Bad could also be stingy. He's just gotten done talking about wealth. And what he's telling the people is to avoid an outlook or a perspective that is based on greed, that is driven by the desire to accumulate things. He's telling a man, he's telling his disciples that if a man is generous, he will have a generous spirit, that everything in him will be generous. But if a man is grasping and greedy, everything that he does will be tinged by that. See, the, the pursuit of wealth is not about wealth. It's never about wealth. It's not about getting more money. Because you can never get enough money. Anybody here who's had a, had a great job knows that. You get a good job and you think to yourself, man, if I could just make this much money, I'd be set. I'd be set. I'd be living large. And when you start making that, you still feel poor. So you try to make that easy 70, right? You got to get that easy 70. If I could just make an easy 70, I'd be good. Except when you get to that easy 70, you're like, man, how am I still broke? How, 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 how am I making more money than anybody in my family's ever made in their entire life? And I still feel broke. Because, see, your needs increase as the money increases. The more stuff you get, the more stuff you want. Again, Solomon says it this way, the one who loves money is never satisfied with money. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefits are they to the owner except to feast their eyes on them? Do you know that most NFL players are bankrupt within two years of getting out of the NFL? Two years! These are guys that are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Millions of dollars a year. And they're broke two years after getting out of the NFL. I, that always astounded me. I was like, man, all I need is like $100,000. You, you can keep the other nine. Just give me one. Right? Except you get that, that million dollars, and you've got to have a crew to manage it, and you've got to have a guy to manage the crew, and then you've got to have all the people that are working for the crew that your guy is managing. And before you know it, all that money gets wasted away. You know, Michael Jackson was bankrupt? How did Michael Jackson get bankrupt? He's Michael Jackson. He owned Neverland Ranch. He owned an amusement park. Like he was living the dream. He owned an amusement park and he went broke. It's because as the money increases, so the people who consume it increase. And before you know it, it's all gone. We do not chase after money and possessions and power for the sake of these things but because of a deeper sickness, a hollowness that's inside of us, something that says, if I have something, it will make me feel better. It will make the pain go away. And there is no difference between Michael Jackson owning an amusement park and me buying a nail gun I don't need. 
or another pistol that I can't afford to buy ammo for. It's the same sickness. It's just a difference in degree. Paul describes it this way. He writes to his, his protege and he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money. The love of money. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, money drives us to do things. Money drives us to compromise, to sell out, to do things that we wouldn't normally do. We devote ourselves to things that we wouldn't normally devote ourselves to. Again, Paul says it this way. He says, for, you, for this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. See, Paul clearly describes greed as something destructive. Greed drives a wedge between us and God. Greed is destructive to the soul. It denies the ability of God to provide. It substitutes possessions for the joy that we have in the Holy Spirit. It is idolatry. It is the worship of something other than God. Materialism is not some little peccadillo. It's not some, some little quirk that gives you character. Right? It's not something that, oh, well, I guess I'm just materialistic. No. It is idolatry. And it's right up there with sexual immorality and these desperate sins that destroy us from the inside. So Paul is saying, search your soul. Find this and kill it, or it will kill you. i got to ask you, what is it that you really want? Because that describes where your heart is. When you close your eyes, what is it you think will make you whole and complete? Is it a boyfriend? Is it that job making an easy 70? Easy 80, easy 90, whatever. Is it retirement? Are you just looking, got to get that 15 weeks in and you'll get that retirement and then everything will be great? Are these things more important to you than God? Before you say no, before you say no, no, of course not. My priorities are God, family, and then everything else. Your actions speak louder than that. Because your heart is where your treasure is. What do you spend more time cultivating? Your relationship with God or your relationship with work? What do you spend more time cultivating? Your relationship with work or your relationship with your family? See, most people will say my relationship is God, family, work, but what their relationship really is is family, is work, family, God. And God comes a far third. Who do you serve more diligently? Who do you worship more fully? Your children or God? See, where you spend your time and the choices that you make speak much louder than the words that you say. 
the person or the thing that you devote your life to, the one that you spend your time thinking about, the thing that you sacrifice for, that's what you worship. That is your God. See, and once you truly understand this, once you sit down and you're honest with yourself and you look in the mirror and you have the courage to see who you truly are, you understand the materialism and the greed inside your own heart, then all of the complicated moral questions become very simple. Right? They shake down, all the gray disappears. And a very simple question comes out. Who are you going to serve? Because you can't serve two masters. We were often taught that the, the key to life is balance, right? Well, I just got to balance everything, right? I'm just going to going to balance it. I'm going to keep everything you know, right in the middle and it'll be good. Moderation. That's not a Christian concept, guys. Moderation is not a Christian concept. Sorry. It's not. Jesus did not teach moderation. He didn't say, hey man, just, just get, find your center, bro. Just find your center. Don't harsh your mellow. Just get your center. No. He taught total, radical dedication. Total commitment. Because there is no such thing as balance. You must choose who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve yourself? Are you going to serve your possessions? Or are you going to serve God? There's no, there's no middle ground there. There's no, well, I'm just going to serve my possessions and I'm also going to serve God and it's going to be great. No, it doesn't work that way. Because you will love one and hate the other. Guaranteed. That's why he says no, no one can serve two masters. See, in the ancient world, they understood this. You couldn't be the slave of two different men at the same time. That didn't work because you were supposed to have total and complete dedication to the person you served. You couldn't be half free and half slave either. You were all one or all the other. It's like being kind of pregnant. How's that working, Kim? You, kind of, what, was, you think you can be kind of pregnant? No. You're either all pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're either all slave or all free. You're either all follower of Christ or not at all. See, the kingdom of God demands total commitment. Jesus was an incredibly charismatic person. People followed him because he was awesome and because he healed people and could make bread and calm storms, right? That, that was, he would attract people to himself. And over and over and over again, his response was to discourage them from following him. He would lay out what the cost was. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave the order to cross to the other side of the lake. And the teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of God has no place to lay his head. He said, You want to follow me? You're going to be homeless. How's that for a church growth claim? You want to follow Christ, you're going to be homeless. Think we're going to get some members that way? That's going to work out? How about this one? Another disciple said to him, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That's touchy-feely Jesus right there. Let the dead bury their own dead. See, this man wanted to follow Jesus on his terms. He wanted to come into the kingdom carrying a big bag of stuff. He said, I will follow you, but I need to make sure that my 401k is good, right? 
I want to follow you, but I need to make sure that I've got health benefits because, you know, that's, I need to make sure that that's there. And Jesus laughed at him and said, let me tell you what real commitment really looks like. Jesus was clear, if you want to follow the Son of Man, you do so on his terms. You do through a total and complete sacrifice of who you are. He doesn't want two percenters. He doesn't want halfway guys. He doesn't want wannabes. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you need to know that you're going to go big or you're going to go home. That's the way he lays it out. If you don't like that, I'm sorry I didn't write it. I would have wrote it different probably and it would have been really touchy-feely, but that's because I'm a sensitive guy. But I didn't write it that way. At one point, he, he's talking about his death. Peter comes up to him and says, and says, Jesus, stop talking like this. This isn't going to happen. You're not going to go down to Jerusalem and die. You're the Messiah. Everything's going to be great. You're going to come to power. We're going to be awesome. We're going to rule. We're going to get lots of money. And Jesus looks at him and says this. He says, Peter, thanks, man. You really set me straight. That's awesome. You're right. Let's go make lots of money. No, he didn't say that. He said, get behind me, Satan. How's that for group dynamics? Right? Feel good, Jesus. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he meant you have to die every single day to your life, to the things that you want, to the things that are important to you, and to live for him. This isn't a one-time thing. This is an everyday thing. This isn't a sort of thing. This is an all-the-way thing. And you think that didn't take up and have a different connotation to these guys after he hung on a cross? You think they didn't think back to that and go, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready for that. See, nobody wants to hear this. We want to hear that we can have multiple gods, that we can have multiple priorities, that we can serve multiple people so that we can be in charge of the way things work. But it never works like that. Thousands of years before this, the Israelites came into the land, and, and they came in, and they conquered everybody, and, then, and, and they started to rule, and they, they started to look around and go, man, there's so many other gods here. And they're so much cooler than our god. Our god is really pretty lame. We can't do cool stuff because he's here. You know, we can't uh, have multiple wives and, and have concubines go to the temple shrines and party at the Asher Poles. This is lame. I don't want to do this. I mean, we want to have the power from God, but we also want to do all this other stuff. We want to be like the people around us because they party way harder than we do. And so they start following these other gods, and Joshua pulls them all together again, and he reminds them what it was like when God called them out of Egypt. And he reminds them what it was like when he parted the Red Sea. And he reminds them what it was like when all of their enemies were driven out in front of them and how all of the cities that they live in were built by other people and all of the fields that they're eating from were planted by somebody else. And then he gives them a very simple question. He says, now feel the, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day who you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This, this choice has not changed in 3,000 years. This choice is no different today than it was back then. You have to choose who you will serve because you can't serve two masters. And your decision would describe the condition of your heart. Because your heart is wherever your treasure lies. Please bow your heads with me. Dear Lord, God, thank you so much for the blessings you've given us today. God, I ask that you would be with each of us. That you would lay upon our hearts a desire to serve you that you would make the choice stark and that we would not be able to run from it. God, I ask that you would be with these people here, that you would give them a desire to serve you, a desire to live for you wholeheartedly with nothing held back. God, I ask that you would send them out into this world as a, as a force for good. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name.